All right. We're going to look at that, uh, those verses there at the end of Genesis 3. We uh, Remember last week I kind of hit pause right in the middle of what was our second point last week. And so tonight you can see in your bulletin, I just want to talk you through two points. Um, maybe I should do a brief recap, and especially in case you weren't here last week. But if you were here, I know you probably still need to recap. Um, I know I did, you know, when I sat down, I needed to recap what, what was said and all that. Um, last week we saw how God deals with sin, okay, which was very different than how people dealt with it. Uh, how did people deal with it? They ran and hid and tried to cover it. They, they made little fig leaves to cover themselves and they went and hid from God and hid from each other because they felt a lot of shame. Uh, God didn't do that. God came after the man and woman and began to ask them good questions that drew out their, um, their, their true inmost thoughts. And then God delivers a series of punishments or judgments. First to the snake, uh, because he was the last one that was blamed. Remember the blame game that we talked about? The, the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake. And so God went to the snake first, cursed the snake, and then went to the woman, and then went to the man. That's where we kind of ended off last week. Here's where we're going to pick up this week. Uh, Moses is painting a picture of how dark life is going to be now that the fall has happened. But he does it in such a way as to set up the brightness of the hope of God's mercy, which is really good. Uh, that's one of the things I like most, for example, about superhero movies. Uh, every time in a superhero movie, things get as bad as you can imagine, especially in my favorite superhero movie, Batman. There is no place worse than Gotham City. It's dark, it's grimy, it's absolutely crime-ridden, and nobody can get a handle on it. And you think, who in the world could ever save this place? And da-da-da-da-da-da-da, here he comes, right? That's my favorite thing. Everything seems impossible until all of a sudden the hero comes riding in. Moses is doing something like that here, you know, and God is doing something like that. He's painting a pretty bleak portrait. Hey, you're going to suffer pain. Uh, you're going to suffer uh, death and frustration. There's going to be conflict ceaselessly between Satan and humans, even between men and women. There's just going to be constant conflict in this world. But all throughout the judgment, God weaves in little glimmers of hope. And also, along with it, gives a huge glimmer of hope, which we'll talk about tonight as well. Okay? There's, there's little glimmers, and then there's, at times, this huge outbreaking of light here at the end of this chapter. Okay, y'all ready to talk about it? First of all, let's look at the glimmers of hope. Uh, even Okay, start there in verse um, 14. When God curses the snake, is there anything positive for the snake in the curse? Y'all take a look at it. Is there anything... Does God say, snake, you are cursed, but I'm still going to help you? Still alive. Well, he is still alive, yeah, so maybe that's positive. Snake's still alive. But, but besides that, is there anything? I mean, it is not good. I mean, the snake is cut off, clearly, right? In fact, the only thing God does say positive is, I will fight you, snake. And I will make you have to fight the human beings as well. I'm going to put enmity there, verse 15. I'm going to make a war between you and your offspring and the woman and her offspring. And then what's going to happen in the end? He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Now think about that. Would you rather be bruised in the head or the heel? 
I mean, I don't want to be bruised either place. But if I had to choose, I would choose to heal every single day. Why? You, you can still live. You're not going to die from a bruised heel. Right? Can you die from a bruised head? Depends on how bad it got bruised. Uh, some translations actually translate verse 15, he will crush your head, which I think is probably a better way to put it. It certainly makes it clear what, what God is communicating, right? He will crush your head, but you will merely bruise or strike at his heel. The picture, you know, think about a snake. When a snake comes up behind a person and latches onto the heel, what could the person do right away? Stomp him right in the head, you know. Who, who wins? Human being. Ten times out of ten in that scenario. Uh, now, if it's a poisonous snake, you've got to get some help after you do that. But if you get the help you need, the, the human will win. That The snake will die. And so the only thing positive that God gives in the curse to the snake is actually not a positive for the snake. It's a positive for the human beings. While they're sitting there listening to it. Which is why most uh, theologians, all the way back to the early days of, it really into Judaism, even before Christianity, they referred to verse 15 as the first good news of the Bible, the first gospel of the Bible. That's what it's called, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. Because in that one verse, in the hearing of the man and the woman who've just messed up royally, God says, the victory is still somehow going to be yours. You will crush his head. Even though you can expect he's going to bruise your heel, he's going to strike your heel. Now, let's look at the next one, the woman. Uh, is there anything good in what he says to the woman? There's a whole lot of bad. Pain. Is there any good? You're actually going to have children, right? Um, it's going to be painful, which it wasn't before. We can presume that it would not have involved all the pain. Um, one great example of that that I thought of, I mean, just think about how many women have died in childbirth since the beginning of time. How many children have died in childbirth since the beginning of time? That's, that's got to be a massive number. I don't even know if you can come up with that kind of number because I don't know how they would even track it. Um, the childbirth has become, since the fall, a dangerous business. Nevertheless, childbirth still happens. Which is a joyful event, amen? So it's a thing to celebrate. Is it not? Uh, rearing children, how, uh, and by rearing I mean not just giving birth to them, but raising them. How, how uh, painful is that? Even more, in some ways, even more than the childbirth, maybe. I've never had the childbirth part, but I would imagine most of the mothers would agree that the raising of the child probably has more pain or different kinds of pain than the giving of the birth. Because it has a pain to your heart. Um, how many mothers have had a broken heart over children? How many fathers have had a broken heart over children? Uh, it, it, you know, this is clearly telling you life is not going to be the way it's supposed to be. And yet, the promise is they're still going to have children. The human race will go on. What God designed for the human race to do to be fruitful and multiply will actually keep happening. Isn't that amazing? In spite of the fact that God said, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. He's, he's giving grace. It's a little glimmer. Now look at what he says to the man. Little glimmers of hope there too. 
Uh, it doesn't sound like it when you first read it because now the, the ground is cursed and so the man who's farming is not just going to produce carrots and potatoes but also thorns and thistles. In fact, verse 19 says, you're going to have to sweat to eat. You will sweat to eat. And when you're done sweating, you're going to become the ground that you've been sweating about your whole life. Seems really bleak. But what are the glimmers of hope in what he says to the man? Yeah. I mean, look at this, that little sentence in verse 19. That little phrase. Not the first one, but the second one. What's the second phrase in verse 19? You shall eat bread. You know, you're going to have a devil of a hard time doing it, but you shall eat bread. God is going to make sure that people are supplied with what they need to continue to sustain life. Do you see how there's like little glimmers here and there of hope, even though the thing is pretty well broken down and kind of broken beyond even recognition in some way? And um, that's important. I, I want to I I help you think about this because a basic Christian view of looking at the world has to involve those two things together. You can't only have one or the other, okay? The world is both the goodness of God's creation all around us and at the same time the bitterness of rebellion and sin all at the same time and the glimmer of hope that God hasn't given up on the rebellious world. So, so it's really kind of three things. Creation, fall, and redemption that you have to always keep in your mind to see the world right. Now, give me an example. This is where I'm going to ask you to participate. Give me an example of when we only see the creational good, but we don't see adequately the fallen bitterness. Give me an example of, some, of how you might do that or someone might do that. If I have to rephrase my question, I will, but Clint? Yeah, that's right. That's a great example, yeah. Yeah, everybody's basically good, you know? Everything works out in the end, right? Those kind of, I call them platitudes, you know, they're just sort of, people say them with a shrugged shoulder as if, of course, it's true. Uh, kind of looking only at the good side, but not ever being realistic about the more Realistic, you know, more di tough, difficult, bitter side, right? Pollyanna. Pollyanna. Uh, is that bad? Is it bad to have a Pollyanna view of the world? A naive sort of everything's okay, everybody's good. Until you encounter reality. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes with consequences, doesn't it? Give me an example of a consequence that might happen if you have a. Exactly. You get taken advantage of. Um, more than maybe anything, you're going to be disappointed. Eventually, uh, you, you are setting yourself up to be bitterly disappointed with life. And, and if you've gone a long time with that view, it's going to be even more disappointed. The longer you've gone with it, the more disappointed you're going to be, right? On the same way, though, give me an example of when we don't recognize the creational goodness, but only recognize the bitter fallenness. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, if everybody else is going to be that way, then I'm going to be that way too. And I'm going to make sure I go out there and duke my way out, you know, through life and get what I need to get. That's one way. What's another? Clint? Instead of 
Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, so you may end up thinking, yeah, I see all the bad out there, but I don't really see it in here. I know why bad things happen to those people, those kinds of people that do those bad things, but why did it happen to me? That, that can be one way. What else? Well, let me, here's a big one. Is there anything dishonoring to God about that? Yeah. Is it dishonoring to God to only see the negative, sinful, fallen, bitter part of life and not the creational goodness? Yeah. No hope. Yeah, or it becomes very, you become very cynical about life and just sort of hard-hearted and can't see any good in the world. You know, and granted, sometimes when you look at the world, at times it, it's hard to find, but it's there. And it is actually dishonoring to God not to see it. Because these verses are true. Well, they either are true or they aren't, right? <laughs> and if they are true, then that means we, woven in all the bad, there's still the goodness of God preserved. People still live. People still have babies. The snake will not win. And people still eat and still know, have the skills to know how to feed themselves. And what a marvelous thing that God preserved people with all those good skills, those common sense. We sometimes call it common grace. Um, that's a theological word for what I'm talking about, that God, uh, this is different than saving grace, the grace that we sing about when we sing amazing grace. That's saving grace, where God takes a sinner and makes them a Christian, a new person in Christ. Common grace is just God just being gracious to everything and everybody and all of creation, rocks and rivers and trees as well as people. God's just showering his mercy out on the world, even though it's undeserved. And so if you only see the negative, you're never going to be able to give thanks to God for the tremendous ways in which he's, his sunshine shines on people. Jesus said it this way, Be like my heavenly Father, because my heavenly Father causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Right? That's common grace. God just, he feeds everybody. Yes, yeah. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Enlightenment people, going, yeah, Spinoza would be an early one of that, Kant and others that sometimes they call it the watchmaker view of the world where... Yes, God did create the world, but it was like a watch. You know, he wound it up and got it going and then just sort of let it play out on its own mechanics without being involved in it. And, um, you know, maybe not as many people today as, like in the 1700s, that was all the rage. You know, about half the founding fathers had that point of view. The other half had a more truly Christian point of view. Not many people have um, that view, maybe explicitly today, but a lot of people assume that to be the case, that the world's just sort of running outside of God's care. It's just kind of clicking like a watch or a clock. And uh, yeah, if, you, if you're not attentive to the goodness and mixed in and the, and the grace of God mixed in with all the bad, then you might tend to, to see it that way. Um, let me give you, those are great examples, great examples. Uh, that y'all gave. But let me, let me give you uh, one major thing 
that this point of view can give you in your life personally, okay? So real practical application. Understanding these verses and really applying them to your life could help you have better discernment. Better discernment. You don't know what discernment, what I mean by discernment? Being able to tell what is good and what is bad, what is good for you, what is bad for you. And, and is that always easy, by the way? Discernment. Not really, you know. Some people maybe are better at it than others uh, by nature, but it's not very easy for any of us. And all of us, our discerning box is broken in some ways, right? There are things that aren't good that we see as good. There are things that are bad, you know, that are good that we see as bad. So the discernment box is not working. But if we learn to have a creation, fall, redemption, common grace, God's gracious intervention in the fallen world view of things, it can help us with discernment. We can learn how to look out at the world and see for what they are the good things that we ought to give thanks for and receive with thanksgiving, while at the same time spitting out the bones of sin and rebellion against God. Right? Um, give me an, somebody got an example of what I'm talking about? Discerning between goodness and not so goodness. Accepting the gift, spitting out the bones. What's a good example of that? It's all right if you don't have one. Because I can give you one. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And because he is truth, like you said, Alex, with his, with his guidance, thinking the way he teaches us to think here, can help me look at and listen to the different voices in the world and discern better which ones are in accord with him and which ones aren't, which is critical, right? Um, because not everything in the world is bad, Right? Y'all, y'all agree with that? Because God made the world, you know. As a Christian, you have to learn to sing both this is my father's world and this world is not my home at the same time. Which is a funny thing to have to do, but that's part of being a Christian. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. He speaks to me everywhere. But yet, this world is not my home. I'm headed to my home and I know this ain't it. Right? And so if you know that, yeah, like, like Alex said, if, if Jesus is the only one who never lies... If these words that we read here in Genesis are not lies but truth, then we can look out at the world and discern where is God shining in what is fair in that thing or in that person or in what they're saying, and where is what they're saying clearly evidence that this is not my home and that's not what I need to be following and listening to. Um, Sometimes Christians fall off one side or the other in that practice. You know, on the one hand, you know, sometimes we just accept everything because, well, God is the creator of the world, and so everything in the world must be good. And we fall off into the boat of just basically following what everybody else is saying and doing and not being different or not even trying to be different. But other times we fall off the other side. Well, if a little bit of it is bad, then all of it's bad. And so we build 
Christian fortress, you know, around the church and make the walls as high as we can make them and try to keep our kids and everybody from every worldly influence, so to speak, that we can. Um, both of those are a mistake. Right? And both of those have consequences that probably are not Christian or healthy. The way Jesus calls us to live in this world is far harder than either of those things. It's relatively easy just to do what everybody's doing, what's fashionable, what's cool, because it's cool. It's far easier also to build a fortress and just say, We're, whatever they're saying to do, I'm doing the opposite. You know? It's harder to live in the world but not be of the world, which involves discernment. Where is my Father shining in what is fair? Where is he clearly trying to show me this world is not my home? Uh, let, me, let me just give you some examples. You, you may think these are, maybe these are bad examples, I don't know, but think about movies. I'll give you a little trivial example. Movies aren't, that, you know, aren't the most important thing in life, but there's a lot of movies out there. Probably most of us watch movies. Um, hasn't always been true, actually, about Christians. A lot, a lot of Christians in the past, you know, swore all movies were bad and you should never go to the movies. Um, right? Maybe that's falling off on this side. Maybe today, maybe perhaps we've kind of started to fall off on the other side, where it's just whatever is out there that's popular must be good, right? How would a Christian go to the movies based on uh, Genesis three fourteen to, to 18? Right. You know, that you made, you know, looking for some evidence. Yeah. And realizing you're also going to be a little disappointed in something. Mm -hmm. maybe. Right. Yeah. First of all, you got to think a little bit more about what you're watching. You can't just, you know, mindlessly take it in. If you're going to watch them, you got to have you got to have your thinking cap on. But the thinking cap must involve, all right, the, some a human being made this. That human being was made by the same person I was made by. Um yeah, they're sinners, and maybe they don't know Jesus the way that I know Jesus at this point in their life. But, there, but there's a way in which God's grace is still sustaining that person. And many of the good things that they know and are maybe going to present to me in this film are actually a result of God being gracious and blessing them with some insights that he didn't have to bless them with that might, in fact, help me. Or might you know, entertain me or whatever that is. Uh, on the other hand, there's going to be things in there that you're going to clearly have to spit out. Because you're going to have to recognize them as being anti-God and anti-what the Bible clearly says. Uh, that may lead you to not watch some movies at all. Because there may be very little in there that is redeemable, right? And I can think of cases where that would be true. But there's also probably a chance that there are movies that you might choose to watch that might be helpful, beneficial to you, that aren't all good, but... There are good things in there, and even the bad things help you understand the effects of fallenness on the human condition and the human heart. That's a, maybe a trivial example, but it's one example of discernment. Uh, can you think of another example? Think of athletes. athletes, okay. So, you know, they can be amazing to watch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. To, to say, wow, God made man to be able to do something that well mm -hmm. through discipline and yeah. hard 
Right, exactly. That's a great example. Did you all hear that? It's a great example. And so as a Christian, it would be, it actually, I would argue, it would be unchristian to not appreciate the gift of God and their athletic skill just because they're a bad person outside of the field. But just because you appreciate their athletic skill doesn't mean you should try to be them or, you know, or, or, you know, try to adopt their very unchristian way of living. Because we recognize that this is, I mean, this is James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Very clearly here in Genesis, every good thing that God just hints at as he goes through the list of snake, woman, man, is completely because he's been gracious and decided to bestow it on people. You could say the same thing about music. Some of the greatest musicians that have ever lived weren't Christians, at least not in the way we would want them to be. I mean, I'm talking about all musicians, all the way back to the classical people, all the way to rock and roll and you know, rap and all kinds of other things, right? And yet there's talent there, and, and there's things to appreciate there in many cases. And I don't think it's unspiritual for a Christian to appreciate them, but you've got to be aware that there's bones in there, right? Um, Actually, a lot of times, God has given more gifts artistically and things like that to non-Christians than he has to Christians, it seems to me, in history. Um, I don't know why that is. You have to ask God one day, but uh, it seems to me that that has often happened. Uh, you think about, I mean, people like Homer and you know, Shakespeare and things, people like that. These were not close Christ followers. In the case of Homer, he, didn't, he lived before Jesus. In the case of Shakespeare, he knew Jesus, but I'm not quite sure that he followed him. But my man was blessed with great gifts from God, which as a Christian, we would be ungrateful not to appreciate. It doesn't have to be that highbrow either. It can be, you know, something less highbrow. Uh, Garth Brooks. <laughs> um, also, he, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, maybe he is, but obviously a very talented country musician and someone who you can appreciate while at the same time recognizing there's some bones in there. You see what I mean? Now, you, you might say, well, what's the big deal about this? I mean, shouldn't I just be able to listen to music and enjoy it or watch movies and enjoy it? Or Let me, You answer your own question. What's the big deal about this? That's right. Whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Yep. And this is what I think is the way to do it to God's glory. It's to give thanks for what you give thanks for, shun what you should shun, and move to the next day. It's a big deal, I think. It's a big skill. It's something that you're not often taught in church, I don't think. In fact, most of the time, we don't even talk about this at all, or we talk about it in the sense of, don't listen to that, you know, versus, well, maybe, maybe you shouldn't listen to it. There are some things maybe you shouldn't, but there are other things that, a lot of Christians would think you shouldn't, but as you listen to it, I think maybe you find some more goodness there than you think you would. Just my, some of this is my opinion. Some of this is drawing from uh, Genesis chapter 3. You decide how to discern for yourself, which is also a part of discernment. Uh, a couple other things that I would point out uh, about the little glimmers of hope. Um, it's important to remember, nobody ever gets away with sin. Okay? Um, on that day when God came to Adam and Eve, it may seem like they were getting away with it. 
Were they getting away with it? No. Not at all. Were their children going to get away with it? No. I mean, I, I love this because God is so balanced in his justice and his mercy. Um, he, he does not have to turn down the volume on justice to express mercy. And neither does he have to turn down the volume on mercy to express justice. Uh, he makes it very clear no one is going to ever get away. In fact, in, in a certain sense, sin is its own punishment. Sin is its own punishment. Uh, to sin is itself punishment. You might not know it is, but one day we'll all find it out if we don't know it already. That we have punished ourselves in a sense by continuing to stay in, in sin. And God is going to show that to Adam and Eve through a long life of struggle and suffering. He's going to teach them, and he teaches us the same way, through a long life of struggle and suffering that sin has consequences. Here's another one. You can't always gather the ought from the is. Yep, yep. You you can't always gather the ought from the is. Just because something is a certain way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. Right? Uh, God says a few things in here that ought not to be, but yet they are. Pain in childbirth. Uh, the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband, but the husband will rule over her. Um, the man will eat in the sweat of his face and die and become dust himself. Those things ought not to be, but they are. And so when we look at the world around us, part of discernment is learning how to see. Just because something is doesn't mean you should draw the conclusion from that. It's okay or it's right. Here's some phrases that I hear a lot. Uh, death is just a part of life. No, actually, it's the opposite of life, <laughs> literally. <laughs> death is not just a part of life. Death ought not to be, but it is. And it ought to make us sad, and it ought to make us upset. It ought to make us angry. It made Jesus angry that people died. Death is, but death ought not to be. It's not just a part of life. Death is highly unnatural, highly unnatural. The most unnatural thing on God's green earth according to God. Everybody does it. Everybody's doing it. I hear that a lot. No one's doing that. <laughs> Neither of those things mean you should do the one and not the other. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's right. And just because nobody else is doing it doesn't mean it isn't right. What is is never a good guide to what ought to be, which is why we need this. And the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to us. Here's another one. I was born this way. Maybe you were. But what is, is never a good indication of what ought to be in me or in anyone else. You've probably heard some other ones. This is the way we've always done it. Here's one that's really good in church. We, we love this one. It's the way we've always done it. Maybe true. But it might not mean you ought to do it that way. It all depends on, well, does this tell you to do it that way or not, right? You can't get your ought from your is. All right, let's, let's move to the second point. This is a, lot, a hopeful point. 
Not only are there glimmers of hope in verses 14 to 19, but in verses 20 to 24, there is an explosion of hope and light. An explosion of grace. Look at verse 20, and you tell me, does verse 20 seem to follow from what God has just done? Doesn't it seem kind of weird? God has just shaken them down, you know? <laughs> it seems like he just shook them down. And then all of a sudden, Adam goes, I got an idea. I'm going to call you life giver to his wife. What do you think she thought? Thanks. Thanks. Uh, why do you think that came next in verse 20? He did. Adam apparently picked up on what God was laying down with exceptional clarity. <laughs> Way more than we probably give Adam credit for. He picked up, wait a minute, there's hope here. And that Genesis 3.15 thing, that woman's child is going to crush the head of that snake. You are a life-giving woman. <laughs> That's what I'm going to name you, Eve, which means giver of life. Isn't that cool? Adam picked up the gospel and he believed it. And because Adam believed it, God counted it to him as righteousness. And Adam became the first Christian in history. I think Eve became the first Christian shortly after when God named her life giver. When Adam named her life giver. And then in verse 21, because they had become Christians and had believed God's promise, look at what God did. An explosion of grace. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Take off your fig leaves. Here's some leather. Get up. Now, fig leaves are different than leather for a lot of reasons. Leather looks a lot better than fig leaves, first of all. I've, I've never dressed in fig leaves, but it doesn't seem to be ideal. Uh, in a lot, for a lot of reasons. Uh, leather is far better product for building clothes, right? Far, far better. Well, hey, I got leather shoes, you know. There's leather. Leather's good. Leather's better than fig leaves. You got, you got it? Another reason, it's not just that leather's a better material, how you gather the fig leaves to make clothes out of them and how you gather the leather is very different. How do you gather fig leaves for clothes? You know, that's about it. Very simple, easy process, painless. Nobody had to die, except the fig leaf, maybe. If you gather leather for clothes... Something's got to die. What died and who killed it? Verse 21. Who killed it? God. An innocent animal who had done nothing to disturb God's creation was killed by God himself to clothe the man and the woman who had shamefully wrecked God's creation. An explosion of grace. You see it? The Bible says that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, became a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. So the first Adam, he was, that God breathed breath into him and he became a living being. 
But when, Adam, when the second Adam, Jesus, rose from the dead, he became a life-giving spirit. Just like Adam had said about Eve, you are the life-giver. And Eve's you know, great, 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 et cetera, et cetera, granddaughter Mary gave birth to the life-giving spirit for all men. The Bible also says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was God himself who put Jesus to death to cover the sins of people. It's the gospel, y'all, in Genesis 3. Clear as it can be. And Adam believed it. Eve believed it. And they began to raise their families accordingly. It's amazing. Now, as if that's not enough, look at verse 22. Something even more amazing happens. An explosion of grace again. The Lord God said, look, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then God's words get cut off and God immediately goes and drives them out of the garden and places two cherubim and a flaming sword to keep them away. Now you say, well, that's not good news. That's not an explosion of grace. Or is it? Why does God say, I don't want him to eat the tree of life and live forever? So I'm going to keep him from it right now. Why? Does he want to live forever in this state? Let me ask you, do you want to live forever in the current state that you're in? Nope. Everybody wants to live forever. I mean, I'll grant you that. But, but everybody wants to live forever in a much better state than we're currently in. And what God did for Adam and Eve and for all of us is he blocked the way. He made it to where we would not live forever in our current state. So, But he didn't pluck up the tree of life. He just placed a guard so that we would not be able to get to it until the proper time. And as the Bible goes on, the temple is built to be like the Garden of Eden. And right in front of God's holy place, there's a curtain with two cherubim on the outside of it, just like in the Garden of Eden. There they stand, blocking the way where nobody except the high priest with, his, with the blood of the animal can come in to the tree of life. Until Jesus died on the cross, and that very curtain, the two cherubim, was split in two from top to bottom, like we talked about this morning. And now, Jesus has become to us the bread of life. He is the tree of life from which we eat. Adam, when he was in the garden, disobeyed God about a tree. And that brought death. Jesus was in a garden. And God gave him a commandment about a tree. And Jesus obeyed. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And when Jesus obeyed about the tree where Adam had disobeyed, the way to the tree of life was opened up again to the human race. The life-giving spirit, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the bread of life, the tree of life given over to his people. This is why I say Genesis 3, got a lot of darkness in it. It's like the superhero movie, you know, Gotham City is awful bad, the world is awful bad, but you got to always look at the world as also the place where God is still present and working. You can't only think it's all bad. It's, God is present. God is This is my father's world, even though this world is not my home. And the explosion of grace comes when you look at Jesus. 
And like Adam and Eve, our first parents, you've got to put your faith in the promise of the gospel, promise of Jesus, to find your way back to the tree of life. Isn't that good? Well, I think it is. Y'all think it is? Y'all still with me? That was a lot tonight. But all very, very important, I think, for us to for us to think through. Let's pray together.